Amen. Please be seated. I invite you to turn to Psalm 21 in your Bibles. Psalm 21, you'll find it on page 539 of the Pew Bible, if you're using that, page 539, and Psalm 21. In our series on the Psalms, uh, we come today to another royal psalm, a royal psalm. If you think back, if you were here with us that week when we covered this, if you think back, you'll remember, I hope, that the book of Psalms began with what could be called a two-panel door, a two-panel door. Two opening psalms, Psalm 1 and 2, form a sort of entryway into this vast collection. It begins with Psalm 1, which is dominated by themes of wisdom and Torah or law. That's why the first psalm uses the image of a tree. Ever since the Garden of Eden, trees have been powerful symbols of truth and meaning. As we saw last time, Psalm 19 describes the Torah, God's law, as a second tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is good for food. It opens the eyes. It makes one wise. And so Moses uh, used those words in Hebrew and David mimicked them in Psalm 19 as he laid out Torah or law as a second tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so Psalm 1 tells us that man who keeps Torah or woman who keeps Torah will be a well-watered tree, a garden tree. So that's the first panel of the door. The second psalm brings into view the other major theme of the psalms. The psalms are deeply messianic and eschatological. Messianic means anointed one. And eschatology, especially kids, it means ultimate things, end things, or where everything is going or headed. Psalm 2 then is messianic. It focuses on David as king who asks for the nations and receives them. We are also told, really we are warned, that history belongs to this king and that all attempts to oppose him will fail. The psalm, Psalm 2, ends by advising, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish. Psalm 2 then completes the door into the collection by notifying us right at the start that these psalms are psalms of the king. They celebrate and predict his triumph. Now, Psalm 21, our psalm today, is definitely one of those, a messianic and eschatological psalm. It is a psalm about the victory of the Davidic king, God's anointed one. But it also describes the Messiah as the ideal Israelite, delighting in God and God's word. The hymn we are about to hear is one of perfect harmony and joy. The Messiah rejoices in God's strength and trusts God with all his heart. Meanwhile, God loves the Messiah and gives the Messiah the desires of his heart. When it was originally written, Psalm 21 went with Psalm 20. We won't read Psalm 20, but they are very much a pair. Psalm 20 asks God to bless the king 
as he goes out to battle and to rule. Verse 1 of Psalm 20 says, May the Lord answer you, that is you the king, in the day of your trouble. Psalm 20 is a corporate hymn for the congregation, we would be the ones singing it, to ask God's blessing on his anointed, his Messiah, his David, his king. The people, the people know, the congregation knows that their happiness and prosperity depend on the king's success. And so they are praying for victory. Psalm 21, though, uses that same Hebrew language from Psalm 20 to then praise God for the victory he has given and and express trust that God will continue to give victories to his anointed one. This is how the psalm would have been used originally. Psalm 20 then is for going out. Psalm 21 for the victorious return of the conquering king. However, the psalms, the language of the psalms and of this psalm, like so many other, begs for greater fulfillment. As we read it in just a moment, you will hear language that can only be fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. As we've noted throughout this series, the Psalms are the hymnal of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, because he sang them at the key moments of his life, even on the cross. But also, secondly, because the Psalms are ultimately about him. The Psalms, like all the rest of the Old Testament, find their yes and amen only in Jesus. In Christ, in our Lord The exaggerated language of glory and joy we find here in this psalm suddenly becomes literal, fulfilled reality. In fact, Psalm 21 proves to be too narrow to hold all his glories and all his victories. Let's hear this psalm of victory then together. Invite you to stand as is our custom as we read God's word. Psalm 21. O Yahweh, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you met him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows." Be exalted, O Yahweh, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it.
Father, we do come now to you as maker and creator of this earth, as the one who has the right to rule and reign, who has the right to make laws over us, who has the right to all our praise and worship. And we do acknowledge our rebellion and the rebellion of our world. And yet even as we acknowledge it, we shout with joy, for you have placed such a king over us, a king of love, a king of beauty, a king of grace, full of majesty and splendor, the wonder of all of heaven. Now open our hearts to see him in his glory. Work upon us, we pray, and we ask it in his mighty name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Psalm 21 is a celebration of God's love for the Israelite king, for the Israel's king. The picture is one of perfect harmony, isn't it? It's the deep delight, the deep delight of the covenant God, Yahweh, who crowns David with glory and honor, giving him the desires of his heart. With faithful David on the throne, Israel's happiness and peace is assured. All is right in the world. But if we're honest, if we're honest, that isn't the easiest concept, I think, for us as Americans, modern Americans, to grasp. Uh, We don't have royalty in America, and few nations today have uh, influential royalty of any kind. So to fully appreciate the psalm, it will help us to cross a few cultural bridges between our own time and the ages of the past. We need to understand first that up until really very recently, most people lived under a king or a queen. And whether they realized it or not, this structure came from the Garden of Eden. In the creation, God made man to have dominion over the works of his hands. Remember Psalm 8 that we studied earlier. David writes of God's creation of man, quote, You crowned him with glory and honor. You put all things under his feet. If we're going to understand royalty, we have to keep going back to its roots in Eden. As we look then at human history, as you look over the sort of the big spaces between now and then, you can see this influence, this stream of thinking running through history. Uh, Kings often claim throughout history to be partly divine, or at least the embodiment of the nation, much as Adam represented all of us in his temptation. Kings were considered by people to be bridge people, not quite regular humans, not quite fully God, but a hybrid of sorts. As such, the people looked to them to connect them to God and to blessing. For example, the Roman emperor in Jesus' day took the title Son of God and printed it on his coinage. Other kings and queens, some of them Christians from the Middle Ages, they hesitated to say things like that. But even they used heavily in their palaces and in their coinage the imagery of Adam and Eve in the garden. In more recent times, modern Western people have emphasized democracy instead of royalty, that at the end of the day, we all are just humans after all. And of course, that's true. But in scripture and in history, we can see quite clearly 
that leaders do have a unique responsibility before God and the potential, the potential to bring great peace or great unrest. Ancient people went too far in associating all blessing and cursing with their royals. But maybe we go too far today in underestimating the impact of our leaders on our own well-being, spiritual, mental, and physical. Now, why am I taking the time to explain this? Because this is the theology that lays behind Psalm 21. Psalm 21 is the voice of the people. Unlike most of the other Psalms, it's not David speaking, though he's writing it. It's the voice of the people, especially verses 1 through 7. And the people are singing about God's love for their king and the king's love for God. They are absolutely elated about this because in this blessed arrangement, in this beautiful covenant, the nation is secure, happy, and completely blessed. Psalm 21 then is full of this Adamic theology. It's what Eden should have looked like had Adam obeyed. But there's even more reason you need to understand this theology. As a modern person, as a modern person myself, we are never going to feel secure in our salvation till we learn to think like an ancient person, at least when it comes to Christ. In Jesus Christ, David's true heir and second Adam, this psalm has been fulfilled. You have a secure future and a secure blessing because your king is perfect and he is never up for re-election. There is no voting on this. Voting is great. I hope you voted this week. But Christ's position as head of his church and ruler of the world is deeper than any vote, deeper than the whims of the masses. Here we have come to something far more profound and lasting than the most recent election. Here we have come to Christ, who cannot be impeached, cannot be dethroned, and is unmoved by the hatred of the nations. He is secure on his throne, and because he lives, his people will live. His people will win. That is what it means to be under a king. With that joyful background, I think we are prepared to dig into our text. The psalm wants us to see the blessing and security of God's king. Although originally applied to faithful David, the thing said here in these verses can only be fulfilled in Christ. The psalm is an intentional exaggeration, or at least it was an exaggeration until Christ fulfilled it. So let's look together at how glorious our king is and how secure our future is in him. First of all, in verses 1 through 7, and you can see this breakdown in probably in your Bible, the way the text is laid out. In verses 1 through 7, the first stanza, the priests and the people of Israel celebrate the love of God for the king and the faithfulness of the king to God. The worship begins in verse 1. O Lord, or O Yahweh, when you see all caps in that way, it's the word Yahweh. O Yahweh, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. Again, in Psalm 20, the people have just asked for God to deliver their king. Probably a great battle was in view. 
Now upon the king's return from victory, the people sing of how the king rejoices in the strength God gave. Maybe the Holy Spirit is winking at us a little here in the text because the second phrase of this first verse reads this way in Hebrew, literally. In your Yeshua, that is literally in your Jesus, how greatly he exults. You might recall that at his coronation, Solomon, the great king, asked God for something. He had the opportunity to ask for anything. Most kings would have asked for longevity. That was the sort of holy grail for kings and queens, to ask for a a lasting reign. But you will recall Solomon, on his coronation, asked God for wisdom, and God answered. It is that same language in Hebrew that we hear then echoed in verse 2. You have given him, the text says, the desires of his heart and have not withheld the request of his lips. The king's prayer life is effective as he prays both for himself and the people as their covenant head. In verse 3, the picture seems to be of God himself now coming out of the city to meet the triumphant king. Verse 3 says, for you meet him, you come out to him. With rich blessings, you set a crown of fine gold upon his head. This may be the moment of coronation. Some scholars think that. Or it may be, and we have Greek missionaries here, so we should say this. This may be sort of like the wreath that is given to the Olympian who has run the race and succeeded. As if David is returning from a great battle and it is Yahweh himself, forgetful of his glory, who, like the father in the story of the prodigal son, runs out to meet David with a crown for his head. We echoed this verse this morning in our singing of crown him with many crowns. And then we come to the book of Revelation and the thin membrane, the little curtain we talk about. I know I talk to you about often that that curtain, thin as it is, that separates this world from the world to come that separates this world from heaven. It's loosened. It's open for a moment. And as John enters heaven, what does he see? A lamb crowned. And everyone around him is throwing down their crowns at his feet. The king has also made a request. In verse 4, we're given the request. He asked life of you. He asked life. I would insert here. Looking back at the New Testament, he asked resurrection, life of you. You gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. Now, when this was first written, uh, David, who's writing here, probably had in mind God's promises to him that his dynasty would have no end, that his kingdom would be forever. However, it is yet another verse that begs to be read in the light of our Lord Jesus Christ. Using the language of Genesis and of Psalm 8, the king is then described as reflecting the attributes of God in a significant and unique way. Look at verse 5. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. Glory, splendor, and majesty are things that belong to God alone. But God's glory here in verse 5 is being reflected on his anointed one. Something of God's splendor is shared with his anointed king. 
Think of the way kings were created in Israel and still in the country of England, for example. They were anointed with oil and gifted with the Holy Spirit. That's what that symbolism is about. Christ himself began his ministry, his reign at the Jordan River, where he received anointing with the Spirit without measure, that is, without limit. In fact, the pouring out of glory and majesty and splendor onto the Messiah here is so great that the Messiah, much as Jesus becomes at the Jordan River, the Messiah becomes a, a sort of conduit to all blessing for all his people. You see that reflected probably in verse 6, which you probably have a note in your Bible, should be probably better translated, you make him a source or you make him a great blessing to all people. Do you see? Israel's anointed king, their Messiah, is one who fulfills the promise of covenant with Abraham. Abraham was told, I will make you a blessing to all nations. All nations will be blessed through you. This is why in the Old Testament and New Testament, the nations are invited to be glad and rejoice at the coronation of Israel's king. This is why the book of Psalms begins by urging the nations to make their peace with Israel's anointed one. You know, at the time David wrote this, uh, this might have felt a little silly, a little improbable. Why would far greater nations, nations more sophisticated, nations more powerful, take any interest in who ruled Israel? What's more, why would they rejoice or tremble for that matter. After all, Israel never was really an empire of consequence, but the invitation is here because Israel knows by faith that one day through their king, what was lost in Adam will be found. One man, one man, perfect in holiness, reigning over all things. All the major empires of the world have tried to claim this, over the past 7,000 years, and each one has toppled because the glory and the majesty and the blessing that flow from it belong only to Israel's king, only to God's anointed. The final verse of this opening stanza ends with a beautiful picture of what happens when God's covenant is working perfectly. Look at verse 7. The king trusts in the Lord... And through the covenant mercy or steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. This is deeply covenantal language. It's taken probably from the book of De Deuteronomy. And if I could translate it for our times, I'd put it this way. The king has a true, personal, saving, living faith in the God of Scripture. He trusts the Lord. That is what he is to do in the covenant. And this trust is never disappointed because God's steadfast love, his, his said, his covenant love, never wavers. Great is his faithfulness. Man with faith, God always faithful, it's the perfect combination. Now step back with me for a moment. Do you have the overall picture in your mind? In Psalm 21, all things are coming right again. God's relationship to his people is utterly secure, predictable, and happy because a righteous, faithful king is mediating that relationship. 
And that is why the people and priests are singing this song. This is why they're so joyful. This is why they're so hopeful. They can feel the Eden-like security of having God's anointed reigning over them. Can you feel that today, believer? Can you see on the pages of Scripture, every page of Scripture, the absolute unhindered delight God the Father has for God the Son, his anointed. And if you can see it and feel it, can you understand that this love belongs to you in him? This is why we, like people of old, still cry out, long live the king. Because we know that in him, the whole nation is blessed. The whole nation is secure. So first of all, in verses 1 through 7, we're shown the Messiah, the anointed of the Lord as all blessed and all blessing. He's the source. He's the fountain of joy and peace. He's settled on his throne. He's asked for length of days. God has granted it. He's won a great victory. And that victory has established his throne and his future is secure. But then beginning in verse 8, the perspective changes, doesn't it? And we're now looking outwards. We're now looking to the future. All the verbs here you'll notice are future, what will happen. And the psalmist wants us to know in the second stand of verses 8 through 13 that the victories of Messiah will continue. Yes, today he is crowned. Today he's on his throne. He's established he will not be moved. However, his victory will grow and continue to grow. Verses 8 through 13 then focus on the enduring and growing victory of the king. Look again with me at those verses, especially 8 through 11. David writes, Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will, that is in the future, find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man, though they plan evil against you, though they design mischief, they will not succeed. The picture here is one of total certainty, isn't it? No one will be able to escape his judgment. When this was sung for the first time of David, it was intentional exaggeration, right? It was poetic license. The priests and the people, if they had common sense, right, they knew that David would not literally find every single enemy he had in the world and destroy them. It was a poetic way, it was a sort of exaggerated way, intentionally so, of saying that no one would succeed against David. No one would overthrow his throne. However, once again, brothers and sisters, what is poetic exaggeration for David is real, for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so David himself has a vision. You heard it, Psalm 110. And what does he see? What does David hear as he's caught up into heaven? He hears the father invite the son to sit beside him until he makes his enemies a footstool. Daniel, the prophet Daniel, a great world leader, has visions of the future. And what does he see? He sees Christ's kingdom like a mountain outliving and outgrowing all the other kingdoms of the world. Today, when we see and hear of movements 
and governments that oppose Christ, we need to pause and remember these kinds of prophecies. We need to remind ourselves and each other that God is not going to give the kingdoms of, these world, of this world to these powers. In Handel's masterwork, The Messiah, he has a moving piece that many of you know. It takes the words of the book of Revelation and it goes this way. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of our Christ. Now, sometimes when you are discouraged, try putting something else in that sentence. I do this sometimes. Try saying this to yourself. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or the Communist Party or the LGBTQ movement. It sounds ridiculous when you try to say it because deep down we know that God will not give the world to these movements. And this can be deeply comforting. Whatever happens, whatever happens, God will not give the kingdom to anyone other than a beloved son. Every great movement wants to claim this status. Every great leader speaks with certainty, but there's only one certainty. Jesus will reign, and he doesn't need our votes. Like the great kings of old, his reign is sure because he alone reigns by divine right. The second thing that's striking, I think, about the second stanza or verse is just how total, how complete the victory is. It's a certain victory. The kingdoms of this world will not be given to anyone else. It's also a total victory, isn't it? Did you notice this? We're told the king will find out all his opponents and utterly destroy them. A blazing oven is a metaphor of being completely consumed, completely destroyed. This is probably why the three friends and Daniel are thrown into a sort of blazing oven, right? It's the idea of not just killing them. You could have done that easily with a sword. It's disintegration. It's obliteration. And so that idea is used here. Verse 9 goes on to say that they will be swallowed up that is completely obliterated. In other words, you won't be able to find these movements. You won't be able to find their kings. You won't be able to find their castles. This is the truth that a demon let slip one day accidentally in the ministry of Christ. Remember in Jesus' ministry when he was casting out demons and one of the demons spoke and said, have you come to torment us before the time? They even know, they know there's no hope. They know the victory is certain and that it is total. Just as we today know almost nothing about David's enemies, you can't recall them, you don't know much about their culture, so also in the future, no one will know or be able to find those who oppose God's anointed. You can go today and dig up in the Middle East and maybe you'll find an artifact or two, but where are the great civilizations? Largely forgotten. No one, no followers, no one hardly remembers them, and certainly they have no influence. Total destruction. Now, for some of you, as I say this, this sounds great. You can't wait for the day when Jesus puts everyone in their place and silences those who mock him. For others of us, these verses may be a little disturbing. Is Jesus pictured here, especially in verse 10? 
as a genocidal killing machine, killing even the children, wiping out even the offspring of his enemies in a torrent of holy rage. Let me speak to sort of both sides of the aisle, if I can, uh, this morning. For those of you who are licking your lips for God's judgment on this earth, let me remind you of something sobering. As one theologian notes, the searching out of Christ's enemies is not something that happens just out there among our unbelieving neighbors. If the Gospels teach us anything, it's that God searches the hearts of his own people. He finds out the enemy within each of us, too. Sinclair Ferguson said this, and I think it's very striking. He writes, Sometimes we say to God, in the midst of our sorrows in life, we say to God, you're hurting me. And he says back to us, I never promised not to hurt you. I promised to heal you. So yes, we rejoice in the victory of Jesus. Rejoice for his enemies will be conquered one by one. Just make sure you are rejoicing in reverent joy, always remembering that judgment begins in the house of God. It starts with us. As the death angel descended on Egypt and the cries of God's enemies ascended, the people of God were safe in their homes. It's true. But I think I can promise you that no one slept easy that night. Not because they doubted God's salvation, but because they knew themselves to be sinners justly deserving his displeasure. Check your joy. Check your joy. Make sure it is not callous hatred for the lost. And know that God will also have the victory over you and over me. On the other hand, for those of you who find these uh, verses, this last stanza, offensive, maybe even genocidal, uh, two thoughts. First, as uh, Nancy DeClasse Walford, an OT expert, notes in her commentary, the language of no descendants in the ancient world is not literal. They don't do full-on genocide in the way we saw it in the 20th century. This is a poetic way, as we've seen all through the psalm, a sort of exaggerated but intentional exaggeration of saying total defeat and removal from power and influence. And it's consistent with other teachings in the ancient world. That being said, please don't miss verse 11. The people sing in verse 11, though they, Christ's enemies, plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. The people, the nations, are coming into judgment in these verses. And we need to accept that they are not innocent, and neither are we. You may never have thought of yourself this way, but let me ask you, have you ever honestly considered whether you are, in fact, an active enemy of this king? That in a thousand ways, in your heart, in your words, and in your deeds, you've been opposing this king and his kingdom, if so, if you can admit that, then you've come to the right place because everyone here is guilty of that every day. That's why the name of the church is grace. We who believe and love this psalm aren't here. We're not here because we were never enemies. We're here because we were enemies and God forgave us. We are not innocent, not then and not now. We've tried to control our lives and the lives of others. 
We constantly want things to rotate around ourselves. We want to be king, queen, and God. Quite often, we don't want him to reign over us. We didn't want to follow his rules. We don't like his eyes on us, and we don't want our options limited. And yes, we have opposed his message, and we've opposed his messengers. Knowingly and unknowingly, we have all opposed the king and his kingdom. We like to think that we're neutral, modern, observant, thoughtful, balanced, secular people. But the reality is that we have to serve someone. We have never been neutral. We are incapable of neutrality. C.S. Lewis once wrote, quote, From the moment a creature becomes aware of God as God and of itself as a self, the terrible alternative of choosing God or self for the center is open to it. Or as one uh, person put it, an author, she writes, I chose to serve self, believing the lie that it was nobody. But after I finally realized it was somebody and a foolish, oppressive master at that, I chose the God of the Bible as he beckoned through Jesus of Nazareth. But here is the best news imaginable, and it is so ironic and unexpected that it has to be true. Jesus is the only absolute monarch who will condemn you for your resistance, no holding back, but then will take your punishment, no holding back. You cannot do that for yourself. No one is harsher in the long run than we are on ourselves. No, someone must be pure enough. Someone has to be pure enough to condemn what I am, live the perfect life, and then gracious enough to pity me and die in my place. This is the gospel of this king. In the earlier verses of this psalm, David writes that God has given the king, the Messiah, the desires of his heart. The miracle of the gospel, the wonder of the gospel, is that when the Messiah was given the option of what he wanted, he asked for us. Here's how Jesus prayed. And you know these words. We studied them recently in John 17. Father, right before the cross, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am and to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. All the great kings of history, all the great presidents make mistakes, don't they? And when they do, they have fall guys, right? Fall guys. It seems every American president and every New Jersey governor uh, has people around them who end up in prison out of loyalty to the leader. It's just sort of a regular thing now in American politics. Jesus is the only king who, while you hate him, will show profound sacrificial love for you. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. David Pallison once pointed out that once you realize what this psalm is about, once you've read it, you've heard the delight the Father has in the Son, you hear the people singing about their king, there's only one thing left to do. And he said, you find it in verse 13. Be exalted then, O Lord. Be exalted in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. 
In other words, may his kingdom come. May his kingdom come in my life and in our world. And as it comes, as it must come, we must sing for joy. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how delightful is your son, the king, in all his beauty, love, and grace. And how wonderful that in the hour of his death he would ask for us. We can barely stand to live with ourselves and with each other for very long. And yet your son has asked for us for all eternity. He is great and he is glorious. And we marvel at his power. But our greatest marvel, our greatest wonder is his grace. Strengthen us now in the hope of that grace. Help us to remember that though we live in a democratic nation physically, we belong to a spiritual king. And his banner over us is love. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.